This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome back everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. My name is Tony Black and with me, as always, is Duncan Barrett. How you doing, Duncan? I'm good, Tony. I- I'm good. I- I've had a Star Trek filled week. Uh, I just got back at the weekend from a um, performance of the Ultimate Voyage concert uh, uh, in in London at the Royal Festival Hall in London, uh, which was fantastic. It was a really really great experience. And um, I'm sorry you couldn't be there because we were hoping to we were hoping to meet for the first time in person, but um, sadly you weren't able to make it. No, and I couldn't even send my my doppelganger. Toby, no, it's, uh, it's really, <laughs> yeah. really tra- I usually send him for occasions I can't make, but yeah, tragic, tragic. No, I, I am genuinely disappointed. I was, I think you said in the um, the episode um, that I was nursemaiding a sickly um, fiance. So uh, that's yeah, right. I, yes, I, I, yes, I did have a noble, uh, a noble cause. I was essentially Doctor Bashir. If we want to, or, oh, you've or, promoted yourself. See, see, I said you were Tom <laughs> Paris, but <laughs> yeah, but there you go. Yeah, you you, you make yourself the genetically engineered. He is, yeah, yeah. He is genetically superior. So um, he is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've yeah. got that. Yeah, I've got that going for me. So if you do ever make it down to London and we, you know, find a pub with a dartboard, I'll I'll, I'll know to bear that in mind, right? Yes. Yeah. Be, be, beware, because I will. I will clean you <laughs> when it comes to darts. Completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it was fun. It was fun. It was. Uh, it was. It was really great. The concert. I really enjoyed it, and it was nice to to meet up with Clara as well um, and record our our episode about music and Star Trek and so on. Um, though obviously we were doing that. We were doing that during the matinee performance, basically. So you could probably hear on the podcast there were bits of the kind of music seeping through from time to time. But um, we couldn't talk about the show itself because we hadn't seen it yet obviously but um but it was it was great i mean i know a lot of our listeners have already seen it because this show's been you know all the way around the states around the world i think it's been to london before actually i think this is at least its second time in london but um definitely i'd recommend it you know if it's coming anywhere near you anytime then uh you know, I say this to to you and to the listeners. Definitely um, get a ticket because it's well worth seeing. Yeah, I, I, given I live in the Midlands and nothing happens in the Midlands, then probably I probably won't, <laughs> probably won't be in well, my you city. Get, you get destination Star Trek. That's that's pretty true. convenient for you, isn't it? <laughs> that that is true. Which was which was where I first met the uh, the lovely Clara. Actually, she she is great, Clara. I'm a big fan of Clara. She she she's lovely. And we first met and her husband Ben, who's a gentleman. Um, and we first met at Destination Star Trek, so that's true. That is true, actually. But yeah, I, I, I will snap up the uh, the Ultimate Voyage. You should. I mean, for me, the, the the thing that really struck me about it that I suppose surprised me was I was I kind of went in, you know, expecting to get all the kind of big orchestral film scores I've 
heard over and over again over the years and that you kind of think of as these these big kind of grand concert pieces and, and all of that is in there and they're you know they all sound wonderful and it's great to see the orchestra live and, and you know be in the room with them but actually the thing that really amazed me about the concert is that they um they flash up you know all these clips and so on on a screen at the same time so a lot of it is these kind of montages so they'll play for example the, the there's an extended version of Picard's uh, flute tune from the inner light which has been kind of worked up for an orchestra and they'll play a sort of montage of scenes uh, over the top of that. I mean, that, that one, quite an emotional uh, sort of montage of, of scenes, you, you know, really kind of tugging on the heartstrings. But then occasionally, the, the bits that I actually enjoyed more in some ways were with some of the TV episodes. They'd actually play a whole scene with the, with the score for that scene. So they did uh, a mock time, for example. And they did, the one that actually really blew me away was they did the um, episode from Deep Space Nine when the Defiance destroyed. Now, I, you know, if you ask me what, what music plays over that, I couldn't tell you. I mean, it's not something that, it's not like a, a theme that particularly resonates, but just seeing that scene up there on the big screen, seeing those actors giving those performances, hearing that music, you know, first of all, you really kind of appreciate the music that, you know, ordinarily might be more in the background and that you probably haven't listened to, I mean, unless you've got all the CDs and you go through them religiously, you're probably not as familiar with those kind of scores. But the other thing that was really nice about it was I think it had a real kind of equalising effect. You know, this concert, it kind of elevated the Deep Space Nine music, the Voyager music up to a kind of equal level with these kind of, you know, obviously big, famous Jerry Goldsmith uh, scores or do, do you know what I mean? The kind of big... Uh, so, sort of the, the, the pieces that we kind of identify as really kind of classic Star Trek music. And it kind of put them all on a bit more of a level pegging. And, and it also actually, for me, um, I'm a bit of a, a JJ verse hater, generally speaking. I'm, I'm not a big fan of those movies. Beyond, I kind of make an exception for I enjoyed that one. But, um, but one of the things they did, because they had these montages and things and they're constantly flicking back and forth between the different series was I felt they they really brought all of Star Trek into kind of one cohesive whole they made it feel like it was all one thing so you know a show like Enterprise which maybe people often think of as a bit of a kind of sort of unfortunate stepchild or, or equally some people feel that way about Deep Space Nine it felt like the whole kind of package and including the JJ verse and, and, and those films was kind of brought into one sort of experience. And it, you know, this concert was designed, I think, in part to celebrate the 50th anniversary. And it really did that in a way by bringing all those elements together and kind of celebrating them as one thing. It's, it sounds terrific. And it's, uh, yeah, it is something I'm particularly gutted I missed out on. Yeah, if, if it's in your city, guys, wherever you may be, Definitely check it Get out. Get a then. ticket. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and we're not sponsored by the Ultimate Voyage, just in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> Sadly not. More's the pity. We might make a few, Bob. Yeah, but no, there nice. you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, someone else who did uh, good business in his day, uh, and certainly if he was still alive, he'd be uh, getting some serious royalty checks, is William Shakespeare, who uh, we're... Uh, <laughs> that's a great segue. That's there, a masterful Doctor, segue there. <laughs> I'm getting better at this. And of course, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did our part one exploration of um, Shakespeare in Star Trek, and we talked uh, heavily about the original series and uh, some of the original series movies like Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, etc. And uh, this is part two. We're going to be uh, moving forward. We're going to be talking about more the uh, the Next Generation era and beyond, really, and how Shakespeare works his way into Star Trek and uh, through lots of illusions and lots of, you know, storylines and narrative tropes and things like that. And I think a big influence that uh, that we've both found is, uh, apart from everything, and we talked about this last time, is The Tempest, isn't it, Duncan? So obviously in the original series, we, we talked about a number of episodes where... Um, 
you know, the Tempest is kind of very much felt in the background where there's the, these kind of characters of Prospero and Miranda in particular are, are recreated in some form or another. Um, but in the next generation, we see a return to the Tempest as well, um, particularly in the in an episode right near the end of Next Gen, actually, Emergence, which opens with a scene of Data performing as Prospero for Picard. It's a kind of a callback to an earlier episode where he's performing uh, in a different Shakespeare play that, that, that we can talk about a bit later. But it's kind of interesting that that... that it's Data who's who's giving this performance. It's Data in Next Gen who is very much um, interested in Shakespeare as part of his kind of understanding of of what it means to be human, and 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 that's something that Picard has has imparted to him because Shakespeare is very important to him. But but actually, Data himself, I think, if you think of the Tempest, is is very similar in some ways to the character of Ariel in the Tempest. We have in Next Gen this uh, relationship between Picard and Data, where Picard is is in this kind of teacherly role in a sense and and data is is both learning from him but also this kind of perfect conscientious helpmeet in a sense he, he's very reliable data he, he'll do whatever you ask him to do he can do things magically quickly uh, he's very efficient and so on and in some ways there is something in that of that relationship between prospero and ariel you know which is a more um problematic relationship because there's an element of resentment in there that that ariel is essentially enslaved by prospero but there is also a kind of affection and, and something of that closeness between them and I think there's a kind of link as well between you know Ariel yearns for his freedom he wants to be free he was originally imprisoned in this tree and Prospero rescued him from that but he's he's kind of in bondage to him and he really wants he's a spirit of the air he wants to be free and in the same way there's a kind of link to Data maybe who is sort of imprisoned by his mechanical body you, you know he's he's Pinocchio we, we talk about at a different time but but really in wanting to be human he wants to kind of move beyond the the form that he's trapped in. I mean, in some ways, Data has a sort of human soul, if you think that, that Data has a soul. Uh, it's just that kind of, in a sort of physical, mechanical sense, he's, he's this machine. And really what he wants is to sort of be freed from that in a very kind of aerial-like way, I'd say. That's true. That is true. It, it is the, the main thrust for Data. And it is something that is... You know, it, it, it's it, it's a debating point as to whether or not, you know, he, he does have a soul and he does have that. But there is that definite element of wanting to break free of, of you know, his programming in, in, in many respects. And, you know, when he gets the emotion chip, that is sort of, a, a, a you know, an example of that. You know, it, it, it's the it's the next stage of his evolution, you know, by a, a simple mechanical add-on. But it, it, it is always that idea of him being that version of Ariel in that in that sense and wanting, in wanting to break free. So it's, it's interesting how with Emergence they really sort of zero in on the Tempest parallels, isn't it? You know, and actually make that episode a real uh, key thing. It's it's interesting as well that Emergence was, I think, like one of the last episodes before All Good Things, before the series finale. And given it's the Tempest was often considered to be the, the last farewell for Shakespeare from the theatre, it's, it's almost like a parallel in that sense. Yeah, and I think that's quite deliberate. I mean, they, they talk about in that discussion in Emergence, they, they talk about the fact that, you know, this is kind of the end of something. I mean, Picard says there's something both kind of sad and hopeful about it. And I think that that kind of almost fits with the mood of Star Trek at the time. You know, Next Gen was winding up, it was coming to a close. But at the same time, Star Trek itself is this kind of narrative of hope for the future, of this kind of expectation of something bright coming along the line. And, and I think there's definitely that kind of thematic idea there as next gen is winding up they kind of choose a story which is about someone you know as Picard says giving up their art about the kind of final creative act but we also see in some ways in the in the way that that story plays out and, and it's a bit of an odd one emergence I mean it's not 
generally a favourite episode of many people, I think, particularly coming so late in next gen, you kind of expect something a bit more meaningful in a way. But but there are elements of the story that definitely tie into that theme. I mean, there's this idea of creation, you, you know, the computer is creating this new life form in a sense. But there's also this idea of the sort of wild and wonderful mysteries of of the holodeck. And, you know, you made the connection uh, previously about the, the island of illusion and the holodeck, which is a kind of island of illusion in itself. And in this episode, we see all these holodeck characters who really are interacting in a way not a million miles away from the spirits on Prospero's island, you know, interacting with the human characters and, and kind of in this slightly puzzling, slightly mysterious, slightly kind of incomprehensible way, but at the same time trying to communicate with them and trying to sort of have an interaction with them. Yeah, and and it's it's quite fascinating how... To, to how you know how looking at the the holodeck and looking at, at the interaction with these characters works in terms of of that Shakespeare Shakespearean connection and obviously you know we've talked when we talked about the holodeck before you know the the next generation is is a sucker for the holodeck you know it really it really engages that a lot and and it, you know in many respects as well it's it, perhaps not quite to the extent of the original series but there is there is plenty of Shakespeare drip through this this series as well isn't it whether it's again certain episode titles or you know more specific references and obviously the main one being Patrick Stewart you know who is amongst all the people we talked about the most directly connected actor to Shakespeare of all of them isn't he yeah I mean absolutely I mean it's it's kind of funny in emergence that Data is playing Prospero and I have to say you know Data gives quite a bad performance of Prospero certainly compared to other performances we've, we've seen him give in, in Next Gen uh Patrick Stewart, on the other hand, is the ideal Prospero. You, you know, he's perfectly cast in that role. I actually saw Patrick Stewart playing Prospero um, in Stratford a few years ago, and you know, predictably, uh, he was brilliant. But it's 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 absolutely in his wheelhouse. It's absolutely the the right part for him in a sense. And I suppose that's one of the things that plays into that idea I was saying earlier about you know uh, the relationship between Picard and Data having that kind of feel of the relationship between uh, Ariel and Prospero. And I think the key line in The Tempest for that really is um, I, I actually, uh, I played Ariel in a production of The Tempest a few years ago and I, it, it was not a, an easy character for me to sort of get my head around because he is a very strange, mysterious character. I think often doesn't really work on stage. And for me, there was one line in the play that actually kind of gave me an insight into the character. And it, it was really probably through through Star Trek in a sense. He has this line right at the end where he sort of advises Prospero to act with he says if you now beheld them your affections would become tender he's talking about the people who are sort of being punished by the illusions who are being kind of punished by Prospero and he's basically encouraging him to forgive them in a sense to 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 be the bigger man to to let go of his revenge and his hostility and so on and Prospero asks him dost thou think so spirit or, or something to those lines and Ariel's line is, mine would, sir, were I human, which is exactly what we see again and again in Star Trek. You know, that that is a data line, basically. That is kind of, that is the line of someone who is human. And that, that's kind of the point, you know. And we see it in Star Trek again and again. We, You know, both Spock and Data have these lines, well, if I were human, I would say X. And they also both have this kind of, after their deaths, I mean, obviously those two characters are very closely related you know after their deaths they have their respective captains basically saying you know we've got Kirk's famous line of all the souls I'd encountered in my travels his was the most human we've got Picard saying something similar about data after his death in Nemesis and there's this kind of idea that you know in having a line like that you, you it kind of encompasses this element of kind of transformation in a sense or this element of 
the kind of borderline between the the character's kind of alienness or mechanicalness or whatever and and their kind of aspiration and i talked about how ariel is you know aspiring to freedom and so on but he also he, maybe it's because he spent too much time around humans but he has clearly acquired a kind of human morality in a sense and a human side to him so anyway so when, when i was um trying to get my head around how to play Ariel, it, it, that definitely was a kind of a grounding point for me. And I, I think probably the way I did it probably ended up being a kind of uh, a <laughs> quite heavily indate, indebted, indebted, indebted to data in some ways. That kind of idea of a sort of slightly innocent, slightly, um, you know, he's a character who doesn't quite understand all the sort of human stuff going around, but and he's slightly kind of aloof from it. But at the same time, he has a kind of a sort of, there is a humanity to him as well. He's not totally alien. He has a kind of humanity of his own. And, um, you know, that's something that we see again and again in Star Trek, one way or another. Do you think that's also why Data is interested in exploring Shakespeare? Because obviously, you know, it's not the first time we see him in um, in Emergence perform Shakespeare. You know, he, he does, um, in The Defector, he performs as in Henry V, doesn't he? And it's, so it's it's not the first time that he's he's trying to, he's doing this. And, and you know, he, he obviously he does other you know, creative you know, acting pieces or, you know, poetry recitals or things like that. It's very much a case of, I think he's trying to, especially use Shakespeare to kind of explore, you know, the human condition and explore it through that text. And I think, I think that's something that they, they, they do repeatedly on, on the next generation, especially. They do. Yeah. And, and certainly through the Picard character, that's, that's something that comes across very clearly. I mean, it's Picard who says to Data, there's no better way to understand human beings than to study Shakespeare. And, you know, and on one level, there's there's some truth in that. I mean, obviously, he's a great writer, but also a very, you know, psychologically interesting writer. Uh, and I suppose that's, that's part of what Picard is getting at, you know, that Shakespeare presents humanity in a very kind of, a sort of, I was going to say sympathetic. It's not exactly sympathetic, but in a, in its kind of broad richness, I suppose, would be one way of looking at it. I mean, that scene in The Defector, interestingly, though, was only, it was a last minute substitution because uh, this was the episode they were going to bring back Data doing his kind of Sherlock Holmes thing. And this was the episode where they, they suddenly got sued by the Arthur Conan Doyle estate <laughs> and told oh, them they, they weren't allowed to use Sherlock Holmes. And apparently it was two days before filming. Um, and so I think it must have been Michael Piller went to Patrick Stewart and said, look, we've got this this scene that we can't use. We need to do something else instead. What do you Reckon. And it was Patrick Stewart, obviously, with his Shakespearean background with the Royal Shakespeare Company and so on, who said, well, why don't we do a scene from Henry V instead? which played quite well into some of the themes that were kind of in the episode already. And then having made that decision, I think they, you know, in the next kind of rewrite, they started threading them in uh, a little bit more. And and that scene is quite unusual, I'd say, um, for a Star Trek episode. It's quite a long scene. There's quite a lot of Shakespeare, basically, in that. I mean, it's only the, the teaser, but it's, you know, it's not just a few lines. It's actually like a whole scene of Henry V, pretty much. Unlike with his Prospero, I'd say Data actually does a pretty good job of, play, of playing King Henry. Um, and also, of course, Patrick Stewart is there twice in the scene. It's a very uh, interesting decision that um, it's not Picard playing the role, but Patrick Stewart under very heavy makeup and with a sort of comedy brummy accent. I don't know what you make of his, his comedy <laughs> He really accent. is, isn't he? Yeah, but, it's uh, true. <laughs> you know, basically playing the Shakespearean <laughs> character. And it and it's a well-acted scene. I mean, I think all the all the performances there, you know, both the two of them and also that there's at least one other guy in the scene. And it, it, it feels like a pretty decent bit of Shakespeare production tacked on the beginning of this Star Trek episode. And uh, I suppose it says something about Next Gen's kind of um, aspirations, about Next Gen's sort of high culture. Uh, you, you know, this is the show where everyone, um, they spend their spare time playing the violin or, you, do you know what I mean? There's a kind of, there's a real sort of high culture element to that show compared to other Star Trek where they, you know, go and 
play you know captain proton or whatever it's it's a it's a kind of um classy sort of you know version of, of leisure and entertainment and that i suppose really starts with picard and and kind of works down from there in a sense um you, you know he is the kind of great uh uh noble sort of wise kind of cultured literate character i mean of all the captains he's the one who is the most likely to spend his spare time reading a book there's a kind of ongoing joke that picard's a bit of a boring man really you know that he kind of he, he he likes nothing better than to kind of you know sit up in his room you know reading some old book with a you know his smoking jacket sort of thing playing the flute yeah playing the flute exactly exactly um <laughs> you know but it but it also ties into this idea that actually in um one of the earlier Next Gen episodes, Hide and Cue, that comes up where this whole idea of Picard's love of Shakespeare is kind of, again, quite thematically important. And it, and it comes up in his interactions with Q. And he has this speech. He, he quotes the speech from Hamlet, What a Piece of Work is a Man. Uh, and he says to Q, you know, what Hamlet says, ironically, I say with conviction. In other words, so so basically, you know, what Hamlet's saying in that speech is he he. Uh, lists all these noble qualities of humanity, uh, you know, describing this kind of um, vision of of human beings as these kind of perfect, almost angelic creatures. And then at the end of it, Hamlet undercuts himself and he says, but to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Uh, And, you know, partly that's because Hamlet's feeling depressed and it's to do with his state of mind and so on. But it's also this kind of, um, you know, as Picard says, it's a kind of sentiment which is, is put up there and then kind of shot down but but that sentiment that kind of idea of man as this kind of perfected being is very much the idea of human beings that we see in next gen and it's quite explicit in some of those early episodes um you know this evolved sensibility it comes across an encounter at far point it comes across again in this episode particularly when they're dealing with q kind of trying to prove that human beings are not the kind of hopeless useless savages who who do terrible things and and and, and so on but they are actually decent good people and you know that speech of hamlet it it ends with this line how like a god and of course what happens in that episode is then Riker uh, is is made into a god you know Q gives Riker the power of the Q essentially and, and tells him to to use it however he wishes and then in fact what we see at the end of the episode is that Riker tries to give his friends all these gifts and they basically reject them and by rejecting them they sort of prove Picard's point they prove that they are they are these evolved characters. They're not going to act out of self-interest. They're going to do the right thing, even if it costs them. And, you know, again, we have data quoting Shakespeare, quoting Polonius from Hamlet, saying to thine own self be true. So again, we've got this kind of um, idea. It's not just Picard in that episode. The whole crew has kind of absorbed this sort of lofty cultural idea of what Shakespeare stands for and what it means about humanity. And as Picard puts it, this kind of vision of humanity in a sense that he has has signed up to that that he's taken from hamlet there's also what i like about hide and q is when q intent probably intentionally misquotes all the world's a stage is all the galaxies a stage <laughs> from as you like it which is typical typical q you know typical q taking it and you know trying to um you know lampoon it i think to an extent you know and 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 put it on his own terms but yeah it's it, it's it's again an example of of the heightened you know, cultural aspect of the next generation. And I do think a lot of that, I mean, as you said, it comes from Picard top down, but I think a lot of that comes itself from Stuart and from his performance and from the, the way he imbued Picard with that real sense of gravitas in a different way from Shatner. You know, we talked in the previous, uh, previously about Shatner, you know, coming from a Shakespearean background, but there is a difference in the way they, they perform. And, you know, I mean, I, I would argue quite strongly that Stuart is the you know the uh 
the better Shakespearean actor of the two. But it's you know he's one of the greatest Shakespearean actors of our age, really. But he, you know, he manages to really in, imbue that in Picard as a character and through the performance, and and then it, and then it filters in. You know, I think then the writers got hold of that and then decided, right, well, we're going to make Picard this learned man. We're going to make him this philosopher. We're going to make him this, you know, this cultural. See on of the of the entire crew, and then it, and then it will filter down, and then you will have data doing Shakespeare plays, and you'll be able, we'll be able to touch on Stuart's own experience and Picard's own you know character itself to actually make this work within these stories, and I think it works. It only could work in that way in the next generation, you know. I mean, you you get it. I mean, you do get it in in the subsequent you know season. You get it in the deep Deep Space Nine at various points, but I think one one key thing. Key difference. I always think of the 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 scene with Picard and Cisco in Emissary, in which you very clearly get the sense that these are two very very different men. You know, in that Cisco's got his own interests in terms of you know certain elements of of, of culture and things, but it's, there's a lot that it's it's different. It's very 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 different between the two of them, and you know immediately that the captain does sort of affect the crew and the show really in many respects. It's something that is clear throughout each Star Trek series. The captain is that bulwark, really, of how the show itself unfolds. And, and you know, Picard is a great example of that in, in terms of Shakespeare. Definitely sort of sets the tone. I mean, it's interesting because we know from, from the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff on Next Gen that actually, in a way, Patrick Stewart was, was slightly removed to begin with. The rest of them were all kind of joking around the whole time. And he was this rather serious kind of, you know, serious heavyweight actor. And they had to kind of... Um, get him out of his shell a little bit and get the same journey we see with Picard in all good things in a sense you know by the end of that story to to get him to kind of be one of the of the group and and muck around and be a sort of you know as big a troublemaker as Jonathan Frakes or the rest of them (laughs) but certainly I think it's true that 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 his performance sets the tone for the show I mean it's interesting to sort of imagine because you know there's also this thing about Gene Roddenberry wanting Next Gen to be quite a different show from the original series about Roddenberry growing up and wanting you, you know having this kind of Picard is is the kind of Roddenberry that he wants you you know is the man that he wants to be as an older man in a sense but at the same time he wasn't wild about casting Patrick Stewart to begin with he was a bit skeptical about him and you know there was this there was this real anxiety about you know is this bald Englishman really the the, the right man to do this it was a bold casting decision and you know also someone who wasn't known really for anything uh, other than you know, known to people who who would go to Stratford and see the RSC, he was quite well known. But you know, other than that, was a bit of an obscure choice in a sense. And it's it's sort of strange to imagine, you know, if someone else had played that part, how how would it have impacted the character? Would we have seen as much uh, Shakespeare in Next Gen? Would we have seen that kind of role of Shakespeare as a kind of touchstone for that series and that role of Picard as this kind of cultured man? Would that have kind of come across in the same way yeah i'm 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 not sure it would have done i I think it would have depended on the actor absolutely so it's 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 a it's a very key point that and we do see in next gen i suppose they they try to play to the actor's strengths i mean with dr crusher you you know they every time they they struggle to come up with a storyline for dr crusher they kind of you know rack their brains for some skill that gates mcfadden has so she can be (laughs) doing dancing or she can be directing plays or something so it's basically it's kind of like slightly scraping the bottom of the barrel for characterization well you know is there anything else in your scene that we could kind of, you know, I mean, probably Patrick Stewart, I'm sure, had fencing on his CV from all the RSC days. <laughs> More than likely, <laughs> they managed, yeah. managed to work that in and a bit of horse riding and so on. So there's there's kind of that that element to it as well. But I suppose there's also this question that, 
you, you know, since we, we talked about William Shatner and also Patrick Stewart having this Shakespearean background, you know, that maybe that kind of equips them quite well for doing Star Trek. I mean, I know Patrick Stewart certainly felt that his experience with Shakespeare was an advantage to him in dealing with this kind of heightened text, in dealing with this kind of heightened reality. There's a quotation I found from him. He said, I think that the experience that we get in making a 400-year-old text work is exactly what you need for giving credibility and believability to fantasy, science fiction and the like. Um, and definitely there's that sense that, that that is true, that he can kind of, um, you know, bring those skills to bear. And I know that often with Star Trek, they would the casting directors would look to theatre actors rather than TV actors because they felt that they would be more able to kind of cope with the sort of strangeness of it and that the kind of slight alienation of of performing in this in this kind of world that's, you, you know, it's not it's not a, it's not a modern soap opera or it's not like a, a legal drama or police procedural or something. It requires, you know, a, a bit more... Um, imagination in a sense and and someone like patrick stewart is is kind of uh is well equipped to to make that leap and to to understand how to do that yeah that that is really interesting about the uh casting the theatrical actors you know it may it, may, it does make a world of sense because you know you you do have even even in the episodes that don't feature shakespeare you know you have a very as as we've talked about before a very heightened reality situation you know you have to imagine with star trek it's about imagining a completely different world. It's about imagining a completely different scenario. And it is, science fiction is a very different kind of game to a lot of other genres, you know. And and for something like Star Trek, which is, especially with The Next Generation as well, it is shooting for the highbrow. It is shooting for, you know, on, on the whole, it is shooting for, you know, telling a lot of allegorical stories, telling a lot of stories about the human condition. You know, and, and a lot, you know, a lot of Next Generation, there are quite a lot of Next Generation episodes that are like plays, really. You know, there are quite a lot of, you know, I mean, good something like something like Darmok. I mean, can you imagine something like Darmok being performed by a, a, someone other than Patrick Stewart? You know, and 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 the actor who plays it, it, it it's very it's very specific, very stylized in a way. It's very theatrical, so it it, it does make a world of sense to do that. And I think it probably did, did help. You know, a lot of the these these great Star Trek episodes actually sort of organically grow beyond the script you know in many respects and actually punch them up into a different level and even the language i mean you know we, we talked a bit in a previous episode about nick meyer getting frustrated you know he, he said i don't understand why someone would say negative when they could just say no i mean even the language of star trek has that kind of slightly artificial element to it. i mean i was just watching the defector i was thinking there's picard has a line i want this report with dispatch now that, i mean only first of all only captain picard would say that none of the other captains in star trek would, would no just, way speak like that but also that could be that could easily be a line from a Shakespeare play you, you know if you were just given that line in the abstract you probably would think it was a line from a Shakespeare play not from a 1990s science fiction series so there is that kind of element to the way that it's that it's written that sort of ties into that I mean people are always sort of saying you know oh if Shakespeare was alive today he'd be writing EastEnders or if Shakespeare was alive today he'd be writing whatever I actually think if Shakespeare was alive today he probably would be writing Star Trek yeah it's probably kind of perfect format for the combination of kind of lofty ideals interesting characterization uh, you know complex dilemmas uh lots of strange alien you know larger than life characters and also language that can you know go somewhat beyond the kind of typically pedestrian realistic you, you know sort of conversational na naturalistic language you know that can kind of go beyond that to an extent yeah and um, even things also, even things as well like 
you know, uh, Picard or the captains retiring to their ready room. It's almost like them going off stage, you know, <laughs> stage right. It is, yeah. You know, yeah. it really is. It's that sort of, I'll be in my ready room, off stage they go. And it, it's, yeah, it, it, there is a theatricality about the whole setup, really. Well, the bridge design is very much, you know, actually quite similar to sort of the design of the globe. You know, if you think of the next generation bridge, you've got the turbo lift on one side, you've got the conference room on the other, you've got your two upstage doors, then you've got a downstage exit, as you say, to the ready room. You've got that door on the other side, I'm not sure where that, that actually goes but you, you know it's true you you have very much and also these levels you know you've got a kind of balcony level and then a kind of lower level as well this sort of playing area and the thrones you know just as you would see in a kind of um you know in a production of hamlet or something you have the throne in the center of the of the stage i mean obviously kirk only had one throne janeway has you know her and her kind of stage husband in effect have their, their two thrones <laughs> side by side yeah. picard has his kind of court essentially with his courtiers and you know he's sat there in his central throne he's got he's got his advisor Riker on one side he's got his advisor troy on the other and there is definitely that that element to it that that kind of um you know, consciously or not, I think that kind of, you know, that that is there in that setup, in that design. It's kind of, it's sort of built into the the, the structure of that somehow. I mean, we've we've been talking, I suppose, mainly about sort of the the serious side of Shakespeare, about the kind of high culture side of Shakespeare, uh, about these kind of lofty ideals and this kind of lofty characterization and so on. I mean, the other thing it should be said is that even in Next Gen, there is a kind of there is an element of taking the mickey out of themselves and particularly taking the mickey out of this kind of Patrick Stewart character of this kind of Picard character I mean I I mentioned you know the rest of the cast ribbing Patrick Stewart and trying to get him to take himself a bit less seriously you know we sort of see that playing out as well in the episode you know I'm thinking of Menage a Troy where uh, Captain Picard has to quote Shakespeare in order in this very over the top you know again an example of deliberately bad acting I mean Patrick Stewart is great at pretending to be a bad Shakespearean actor and giving this kind of unconvincing performance in his attempt to kind of, um, you, you know, get the Ferengi to, to give up Waxana Troy. Uh, in Time's Arrow, there's this kind of comedy scene where they, um, you know, they, they they tell the landlady that they're rehearsing A Midsummer Night's Dream and they, they all have to play the various parts. And, and she is, sort of again, involved in this kind of comedy bad acting. Um, you, you know, just <laughs> like we saw, to be honest, with Data in Emergence. You know, Data was doing this sort of hammy John Gielgud impression, basically, you know, not doing a really... a, a great Shakespearean acting there's this kind of element uh, of comedy there and and actually um, that idea of comedy that idea of um, the lighter side of Shakespeare and particularly that sort of anchor of A Midsummer Night's Dream is something that carries through into Deep Space Nine in probably one of the most explicit uh, adaptations of a Shakespeare play that we see in Star Trek since the original series really is the episode Fascination in Deep Space Nine is you know is basically A Midsummer Night's Dream in space effectively you know it's very consciously riffing on that story on that theme on the kind of mood of that of that play as well which is quite light and quite silly and quite sort of um you know frivolous in a sense um and i know with that episode they they knew it was the episode that immediately preceded past tense which is obviously a pretty dark serious heavy episode and they kind of wanted a sort of light sort of uh, a bit of frippery in a sense a bit of a kind of palate cleanser before they got to that real heavyweight story and this was the one they came up with and apparently the writers were very influenced in particular by the um 1930s film adaptation of a midsummer night's dream and and really worked that story into the the episode that they wrote you know in, in quite a kind of blatant way i suppose but i would say a way that that works pretty well i mean i think it's um it's interesting that episode it's kind of it is very light it is very kind of um inconsequential but at the same time because deep space nine does character work so well you sort of buy into it and you you enjoy it uh, in a way that i think that 
even if Next Generation had tried to do that episode, I don't think it would have come off in the same way because I don't think the character interaction was as sort of amenable to that kind of comedy in a way. I mean, if you think about, say, The Naked Now, where they, they tried to sort of make everyone behave weirdly and so on, it, it's kind of slightly cringeworthy. Whereas Deep Space Nine, they can all act totally out of character. They can all do ridiculous things. They can make complete fools of themselves. But somehow there's enough charm and enough sort of believability to the characters underneath that, that it, it works, you know, against the odds, I'd say. Well, that's that's exactly it. You're absolutely right. With Fascination, I mean, it's the first real example on Deep Space Nine where they decide, right, we're going to completely just be really flippery and flippant and have fun and make this a real romp and be really silly. You know, it's the first first proper, I'd say, full example of that in the in the entire... And they had the confidence by this point in season three to be able to balance that and do the two. Because, like you said, they'd, they'd invested the characterization enough that to see, you know, Kira and Bashir snogging like horny teenagers on the promenade, you know, is, is, is funny in, in itself without being, oh my God, like you said, The Naked Now is a great example of one where you go, oh no, please stop, please stop. But it, it's earned in Deep Space Nine and it works in that sense of being able to take these these, these very serious, you know, characters with a lot of some of them like someone like kira again for example who's got this really sort of dark backstory in many respects and he's often very strong-willed and you know severe and then to have her be completely in inhibit uninhibited is 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 really it works really well and it is in the great tradition of midsummer night's dream and shakespeare of that of that kind of comedy of comedy of misunderstanding comedy of farce comedy of love potions and throwing people into these different you know entanglements and it's it's fun and it's surprising really actually how well it works in deep space nine you wouldn't you wouldn't think it would <laughs> no but it does i mean on paper it sounds like i mean funnily enough when we, we were sort of planning this episode you, you know you and i were saying oh well we might not have time to both watch all the episode was going to discuss so we'll sort of divide them up and i took fascination thinking slightly with gritted teeth thinking oh you know because i i sort of had a vague memory of it but I, I wasn't really expecting that much and actually when i watched it i was surprised at how much i enjoyed it you know and i think it, it is interesting deep space nine is by far the darkest of the trek series but also you know probably does the best comedy uh, yeah, you know, it can do. Times, and I yeah. think they, they, it's it's partly the writing, it's partly the characterization, but it's also it's very well directed. It's Avery Brooks directed it, directed it with just the right balance, just the right touch to kind of bring out the comedy from the situations, but without without sort of going for the laughs in a way that that is is cringeworthy and alienating, if you know what I mean. You, you know, the laughs are there, the behaviour generates that kind of amusement, and and you know, really, it works very well. And also, it's sort of. Um, one of the interesting things, there's this kind of whole Bajoran festival going on at the time. And, and even in the kind of music and so on, there's this sort of, the Bajoran music has this sort of slightly twee Shakespearean, I mean, I haven't seen that 1930s uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, but exactly what you think of as that kind of old fashioned version of Shakespeare. Do you know what I mean? So even in something like the music uh, and the costuming and so on, there's this kind of slight sort of subtle hinting of this this kind of world that's going on behind the story in a sense or or you know bit behind the play that they're actually presenting yeah yeah it really it really it really does and it's yeah it, it's I, I always enjoyed fascination I, I i really had a soft spot for it back in the day again and it, it, you know deep space nine does similar to the next generation in that it again has titles of, of episodes that borrow 
from Shakespeare, like the past prologue, which is this only the second episode after Emissary, borrows from The Tempest again to, you, to talk about The Tempest, you know, what's past his prologue, which is another famous line. You know, Heart of Stone in season three, that title is taken from Twelfth Night. Uh, I have said too much into a heart of stone. You know, so there's, so there's lots of, even in this, there are lots of, uh, of, of Shakespeare allusions. Once more into the breach, as a, he's probably one of the most recognisable as an episode title, the season seven episode, which is uh, the famous Henry V line, one of the most famous Shakespeare lines of all. So it's, and then the Dogs of War, obviously, as well in season seven, um, taken from Julius Caesar, which again, it goes back to General Chang and things like that uh, in terms of what he says. So again, they're, they're tapping into the same well, you know, in many respects, even if the approach isn't necessarily as full-on and as highbrow as in the next generation. Well, there, there are moments which which sort of tie into that kind of, um, you know, not just the episode. I mean, I think that, that there's kind of the titles of the episodes, which are obviously, um, you know, it's a bit like you have two types of music, don't you? You have the, the music that the characters can hear and you have the music that, that is imposed as part of the structure of the of the art, if you know what I mean. Like, they don't know what the name of the title of the episode is. But there are also, like, uh, references, you know, in dialogue and so on. And I'm thinking Improbable Cause and the Dyer's cast actually has this kind of theme of Julius Caesar running through it because the, the first of those episodes opens with... Um, Bashir has given Garrick some Shakespeare to read and he's read Julius Caesar and basically Garrick says, well, this this is a rubbish play. You know, this is ridiculous. How can you take this guy seriously when he didn't see that all his friends were plotting to kill him? And, you, you know, that he didn't see this assassination attempt coming. But then actually later on in the Dyer's cast, you know, to some degree, the same thing happens. The the Tain character doesn't see things coming and, and Garrick quotes Cassius at him, the fault, dear Tain, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. So he he's sort of... Um, in some ways sort of absorbed a, a lesson maybe from that play that he dismissed insta- you know, initially. But there's also this sense that Garrick himself uh, in his backstory with Tain is maybe kind of inspired by the story of Julius Caesar because he, he says that he betrayed him but never in my heart. And it's very much that kind of theme of you know, Brutus, who is kind of Caesar's uh, closest friend in a sense, but feels he has to act against him and has to take part in the assassination, uh, even though it, it troubles him deeply on a kind of moral level and on a personal level, he he feels he's doing the right thing. And, and with Garrick, there's this sense that, you know, and I don't think we ever quite get to the bottom of what happened in that relationship, but, you know, there was a betrayal, but at the same time, he feels like in, in his heart, he never truly betrayed him. So there's the kind of connection there between their backstory you know, in the past, as well as the story that's happening in the present, and the kind of themes of the play that they are discussing in both those episodes. And also, I was interested, reading up on those episodes, um, René Aubergenois was talking about the torture scenes that happened between Odo and Garrett. And he said that he, he said, I felt like some character from King Lear, and the acting method I used was very Shakespearean. I don't know exactly what he means by that, but, you know, it's interesting. So he approached it as a scene from a Shakespeare play, almost, or as he would have approached a scene from a Shakespeare play. You know, again, sort of going back to that idea that, you know, Patrick Stewart was saying that he'd been equipped with skills as a sort of classical actor that he could bring to that kind of stylized reality or to that kind of style of storytelling on Star Trek. And and really, uh, you know, René Auberjean was saying the same uh, kind of thing, that, that his his kind of Shakespearean approach would inform that in a way. Well, again, that doesn't surprise me. You know, he, he is, uh, he does have, uh, he's one of the actors on Deep Space Nine, one of, uh, who has among the most gravitas in the way he delivers his lines and the way he, he plays Odo throughout a lot of the, and, and in that scene, I mean, that quite harrowing torture scene where Odo is effectively melting and being killed. I mean, it's quite, look, I, I mean, I love that, those episodes. The Dice cast especially is just a phenomenal piece of television. 
but but and and those those scenes where Garak is torturing Odo, I mean, it, it's powerful stuff to watch. And you know, you really. So I think maybe he was tapping into just that sort of, that real sense of you know, as he says, Leah, that sort of tragic figure who is just being betrayed, you know, by somebody close to well close to him in a sense, you know, somebody in terms of Garak, somebody who he's if not trusted, then he's at least come to believe isn't isn't the enemy. And then, and and as we say, Garrick then turns on Tane ultimately. And uh, as you said, their their relationship is complex. And ultimately, I'm pretty sure, if I remember rightly, Garrick is Tane's son in the runout. So yeah, it, it gets even more complicated in that way. Also, with Odo, there's that. I mean, just thinking of Leah, there's that kind of element of Gloucester being blinded in Leah, and the kind of I, I, I suppose there's an element of that in that scene that Odo starts off very kind of cocky and you know like mocking Garrick, and then ends up being kind of debased by him to an extent and kind of really humiliated by him and, and victim in that situation. So you could sort of see the parallels that maybe he's getting at there with that, that kind of a, a, you know, a scene. And I think it, it, it sort of goes along the lines of the fact that Deep Space Nine itself has a lot of very Shakespearean kind of characters, doesn't it? I mean, it has people who, you know, it's quite often, in fact, more so the recurring characters, really, the side characters who come into this huge tapestry that ends up being weaved with the Dominion War and, and the Founders and, you know, the, the Bajoran mystery and everything like that, everything that all weaves together in the end in this brilliant tapestry. You do get the sense of these very these very Shakespearean theatrical characters. Along, you know, I mean, it, it, Nicholas Mayer wouldn't have been a miss writing for this that show because it's the same kind of archetypes in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, I mean, you mentioned uh, Once More Into the Breach. Uh, the character of Kaur was actually deliberately uh, based on a Shakespearean character. It was based on Falstaff from uh, Henry IV plays. I'd never sort of realised that. I mean, I'd watched the Kaur episodes and I hadn't made that connection. But once, you, once you're aware of it, it kind of is staring you in the face in a way. Yeah, it really is, you know, and... and it's it's i watched the the core trilogy as i call it for this episode you had obviously blood oath and then the sword of Kalis and then once more into the breach and you do see a real arc with core as somebody who was a great warrior is part you know ends, ends up being part of a, a band with his with his best friends to go off and and slay a, a villain from his from their history, and then he he loses his friends, and he's a man on his own. And then he each 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 time you see Kor, he's trying to regain his honor in various different ways. You know whether it's trying to take out an old enemy, whether in the sword of Kaelas he's he's battling his own antipathy with Worf, and then ultimately battling his in, himself as does Worf when they get this this ancient Klingon relic, which seems to have powers of you know, uh, of almost mind control over them and actually turn them in on themselves and make them savage in many respects. And then he has to overcome that and find, you know, find when he wants to actually use that as a, as a source of power. And then in the, once more into the breach, he's regaining his honour in a final, you know, battle to, to die as a Klingon. And so it is all about somebody really going through that that arc. And, and it taps into what we've talked about before with the Klingons being very Shakespearean, you know, being very... Along those lines of of the the kind of characters who who you know tap into those Shakespearean themes and Core's a great example and the Fal- the Falstaff links are, are, are very clear 
Um, and it works really well. It just works really well as a story. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, I suppose also with Core, what's quite interesting, and I know that the the actor was quite hesitant to reprise that role when he first got the script for for Blood Oath, I think, because he sort of because he's quite different from the character in the original series in a sense. I think he felt like in the original series he was this kind of very sort of respected uh, antagonist in a way, like he he was a certain kind of character, and and really in the Deep Space Nine episodes. Um, there's a lot more comedy. I mean, he, he the the way he works as this kind of full staff character is he sort of combines these comic story with a kind of tragedy, a sort of sort of tragic comedy in a sense. In the same way that full staff does, there's also this you know all these references to him being really fat, which which I always found slightly odd because actually he doesn't look that much fatter no. than the other but, <laughs> but obviously again there, there's that kind of idea. He's meant to be sort of physically ridiculous. He's meant to in the same way as full staff is this kind of physically ridiculous character. And actually the weird thing about those, particularly Henry the Fourth plays, you, you know the character of full staff, his ridiculousness sort of ties into his tragedy somehow i mean i we were talking earlier about david warner i think probably the probably the best shakespearean performance i've ever seen was actually david warner playing falstaff and you know totally this was in stratford again totally cast against type i mean not really the sort of role you'd expect from him you know you think of him as quite sort of sort of serious and weighty and you know a bit sort of gravelly um Full stuff obviously is quite a comic character, quite sort of broad, uh, this huge, uh, you know, ridiculous man. It was just an absolutely sublime performance. Uh, really, really funny. But also, you know, I mean, I, I one of my great regrets is that I never... Basically, I saw Henry IV Part 1 and I didn't get a ticket for Part 2. And I've always wished I'd gone back to see it because even in Part 1, which is where more of the kind of comedy is, there were kind of hints of the sort of tragic elements of that story to come and of his sort of fall from grace and and so on there were kind of hints in there that were intensely moving just from the way that warner played them and so on but you know obviously in part two that's where you kind of get the big payoff with all of that and um you know i'm i'm sure his performance was was even more wonderful in that um but you know, Fullstuff is a really interesting character, a kind of, I guess, again, what we're saying about Deep Space Nine, being able to combine the tragic and the comic uh, so well, being able to kind of juggle those issues of tone. And also definitely very Shakespearean. I mean, particularly in Once More Unto the Breach, you know, aside from the fact that you you have the Shakespearean title, he even speaks. I mean, I, I talked earlier about Picard speaking kind of vaguely Shakespearean lines. Core in that, in that episode, basically, his, his he has this sort of, because he, he's sort of losing his mind, he's got a kind of cling on dementia or something basically he's very confused and and uh you know losing track of reality and, and which battle he's fighting and so on but he has this sort of moment of lucidity where you know his confusion kind of falls away and he speaks this line which is basically you know it sounds like a kind of shakespearean couplet he says um savor the fruit of life my young friends it has a sweet taste when it's fresh from the vine but don't live too long the taste turns bitter after a time i mean that is again very poetic. I mean, even by you know Star Trek standards, extremely poetic writing, and you know, and self-consciously and deliberately so. That's this character sort of, you, you know, we see this in Shakespeare again and again. The difference between like the the low life characters talking in prose and the noble characters speaking in verse. I mean, that's kind of core rising up to the level of verse in a sense. You know, rising up to this rhyme, rising up to this kind of uh, noble, uh, artful mode of expression that is this kind of. You know, when we talk about the Klingon culture and obviously there's all the like fighting with swords and drinking wine and, you know, making a mess of everything and causing chaos. But there is also this kind of nobility and this kind of 
culture of, of of this kind of courtly ideal in a sense and i suppose that's core kind of rising back up and, and reclaiming that kind of courtly past that he's had in a sense and very much in this sort of shakespearean mold yeah and, and it fits his character story and you know the 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 ultimate you know fate for core really well and i, I think that's that's something that carries through into a lot of these characters who who have in deep space nine who have these shakespearean sort of tropes or illusions and things like that you know and and i I think one of the biggest you know in a similar way to khan is ducat who is even though he may never quote shakespeare he is a shakespearean character through and through you know i mean for me outside of khan he is the greatest villain of the star trek universe by far he's just amazingly performed by mark alamo all the way through but he has one of the greatest character arcs i think i've ever seen in a villain in any kind of fiction ever and he goes through so many shakespearean kind of ups and downs and complications and entanglements and delusions of unbelievable grandeur and egotism that he is just amazing to watch and it would have been it would have been amazing to see him quote shakespeare (laughs) actually i would have loved yeah yeah absolutely I mean, I suppose one of the reasons that, you know, Shakespeare provides such great villains is is because he doesn't write them as... I mean, he does occasionally write villain characters, but essentially he writes anti-heroes. He doesn't write villains. I mean, if you think about Descartes, you think of, you know, maybe Richard III or Macbeth. But, you you know, these are villainous characters in a sense, but they're also the hero of their story. You know, they're the, the tragic hero. And, uh, you know, as unpleasant as, say, someone like Richard III, you know, in moral terms is a villain, but in theatrical terms is the hero of the story. And I suppose with Descartes, you get that element of that, you know, there's a lot of interest in his psychology. There's a lot of interest in his potential for redemption. There's a lot of interest in sort of why he does what he does, you know, really taking this character seriously um, and treating him as a complex character. You know, the reason he's such a great villain is because he's he's so ambiguous and so complex. And every time he does something awful, he then surprises you by doing something, you, you know, unexpectedly generous or you know, and, and and that's a big part of it. And, and even other villains, I mean, like Kai Wynn, for example, is an interesting villain because, again, you know, she's just a sort of skin-crawlingly obnoxious, horrible woman. But at the same time, <laughs> she has, she does have occasional virtues. You know, sometimes she does things for good reasons. And she also, you can feel sorry for her. I mean, th- th- there's an element of you can understand why she feels so disappointed in her life. You know, things haven't worked out. For both her and Descartes, I suppose, there's this real, I mean, actually, I, Zachary and uh, Mike and I on Metatrex were talking about this um, a while ago when we were talking about season six of Deep Space Nine, this kind of idea of resentment, which is a big part of Ducat's character. It's also a massive part of Kai Wynn's character. You know, this kind of resentment at her her life not having, even though she's acquired all this power and so on, uh, you know, the fact that the prophets don't speak to her, the fact that she's sort of, you know, that she has to deal with the emissary stealing her thunder... Um, you know, and these these things are are understandable. There is something kind of sad about her character, as well as 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 sort of repulsive. She's also got a I mean, in Shakespearean terms, she's got a real kind of Mark Antony uh, style to her. You know, that idea of kind of dishonesty, of twist. You, you know, being able to twist your words to say one thing, but have the opposite. You know, manipulating people in a way. You know, if you think of Mark, Mark Antony's speech in Julius Caesar, he's very much, you know, he keeps saying, you know, well, I'm here to do one thing. I'm not trying to make political points. You know, I he, he says, I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him, you know, but he keeps, and he keeps saying over and over again, the, these are honourable men. You, you know, if, if they said this, then they must be honourable men. And the, But the way he says it is basically 
to say the opposite you you know and it's very much that kind of um the way that kai win deals in this sort of dishonest language the whole time and to cut as well equally a dishonest you know a liar essentially a compulsive liar um definitely both very kind of shakespearean kind of characters but but elsewhere in star trek we see characters who have kind of shakespearean uh aspects to them i mean we were talking about the klingons you know uh wharf i'd say is kind of is a kind of coriolanus character you know this kind of noble warrior who just can't cope with the sort of vicissitudes of politics and and the way that the world really is i mean that's the story of coriolanus basically is he he's this great hero and so on but he can't he just can't deal with with the political arena he can't deal with kind of people having personal interests people who don't act out of honor and kind of and that kind of warrior code and and you know you see that certainly with Worf. You know, in some of the other Klingon storylines, like that, you know, we see towards the end of Deep Space Nine, the desire to get rid of Gowron. Gowron is this kind of weak leader who has to be removed. I mean, again, there's kind of shades of Julius Caesar there. There's also maybe Richard II. You have this kind of theme of the king who is, you know, he's hurting his country and has to be, you know, removed for the greater good in a sense. Um, you know, again, there's a kind of you know, definitely a sort of Shakespearean inflection there. And and we see in, uh, sticking with Deep Space Nine, in statistical probabilities, we see, again, sort of Shakespearean illusions, Shakespearean quotes being used to describe the situation with Cardassia, with Descartes and Dumas, the, the, the characters in that, the genetically uh, engineered characters. When they watch the video of Dumas, and they have this kind of insight into what's happened, this kind of miraculous insight, really, into what's happened, that they can divine the whole, you know, course of several episodes worth of plot basically from this one speech they 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 see him very much in terms of these kind of archetypes they they say he's a pretender but they also see him in terms of shakespearean quotations um they quote macbeth uh demar doth murder sleep which is you know macbeth doth murder sleep when he's uh you know wrapped with guilt in a sense they um they use the line uneasy lies the head that wears the crown which is from henry the fourth and again a reference to uh you know you know to henry the fourth who is who is bolingbroke in richard the and the, the the man who deposed the, the previous king, you know, and ended up taking the crown himself. Um, so they kind of pile these, they, they, they use their understanding of Shakespeare to understand the contemporary politics of what's happened with the Cardassians and with that regime. Um, and, and it's a kind of, like I say, sort of almost magical inside. And then there's also the fact that those characters are themselves almost Shakespearean tropes because, you know, they're... On one level, they're the kind of autistic savant, but they're also the kind of wise fool that you see in Shakespeare. You know, the fool who is supposedly uh, just a bit of a clown, a bit of an idiot, but actually says the things that no one else can say. You know, and the kind of blurred line that you see in a lot of Shakespeare's plays between kind of madness, mental illness and sort of insight and, and you know, putting your finger on something and, and say, speaking truth, in a sense, in a way that, that other people are not willing to acknowledge. It is in a lot of Deep Space Nine episodes, isn't it? You know, all, a lot of these these illusions, these characters who, you know, fit certain tropes and roles within Shakespearean plays. It doesn't seem to be uh, something that is in a massive amount of Voyager or Enterprise, though, really, Shakespeare. It, it, it sort of trails off after Deep Space Nine, doesn't it, really, in terms of a lot of the references and allusions i think that's definitely true i mean you, you get maybe the odd reference i mean in the episode tuvix you get a bit of a sort of reprise of shylock's famous uh speech from the merchant of venice you get tuvix saying you, you know uh, when i'm happy i laugh when i'm sad i cry i'm flesh and blood and i have the right to live and there's this element of this kind of you know the character who's proving their humanity we, we see that again i suppose with data in a measure of a man and, and with the doctor in voyager as well the character who has to kind of stake their claim 
claim to being treated as a human being, you know, or, or maybe not literally a human being, but as a, as a you, you know, sort of sentient um, life form who deserves to be treated in a certain way. We see it, ironically, in uh, Far Beyond the Stars. That's what Benny Russell says. He says, I'm a human being, damn it. You know, it's that same, exactly that same kind of appeal. You know, don't, don't abuse me. Don't, don't uh, dismiss me in a way, like recognise my humanity and my right to be treated in a certain way. So there's that kind of illusion there. There may be a few other um, little references. In Enterprise, there's quite a funny um, scene in the episode Cogenitor, where basically Archer has made friends with this, this alien captain and, and Hoshi has given him the complete works of Shakespeare to, to read because he's interested in human culture. And he comes back basically saying he read the lot the previous night because he's a fast reader. And he starts talking <laughs> to Archer about, about Hamlet a bit. Um, and Archer, unlike Picard, is, is probably like the, the least literate uh, character as far as we can see. I mean, I don't know <laughs> that we ever see him. The only time I can think of we see him reading a book, it's a joke because T'Pol has given him this uh, tedious Vulcan philosophy <laughs> book and he's clearly not really going to read it. You know, Whereas Captain Picard, when he goes on holiday, he takes a big stack of books. Yeah. Um, so the, it's kind of played for comedy. So the, the, the alien captain starts talking to Archer about Shakespeare. Um, Archer can just about cope with a very surface level conversation about Shakespeare. Then he says to him, um, oh, I thought I might move on to Sophocles. Do you have any, you know, any tips on which plays I might enjoy? And Archer basically changes the subject very quickly. Because <laughs> clearly, you know, uh, he's not equipped to answer that question in the way that Captain Picard could probably have, yeah. you know, given him a whole reading list. Absolutely. And, and even a, a sort of lecture on the subject. But, you know, I think we see certainly with, with, with Captain Archer, I, I always think there's a bit of a link between him and the kind of, you know, we were talking about um, uh, in, in, in other episodes, the kind of, war on terror context for enterprise and so on there's a slight george w bush aspect to archer he's very mm. folksy he's a bit of a kind of he likes watching sports and you know drinking beer and, and eating his pretzels and so on. He's, a, he's, kind of, he, he's he's not the kind of cultured captain that that we no. grew to expect he, he's, he's a card to a limited expect uh from cisco and again with janeway you know she reads dante she's quite sort of she has a sort of highbrow interest as well but uh, you know not certainly not to the extent of picard i think i think he, he, he's a bit more cisco probably archer than than any of them you know i think you'd get on all right with cisco you'd be able to talk to him about baseball and things like that so i think there's they don't they'd have a certain shared thing but you yeah, know i know what you mean it's it, it does tail off a bit and i think maybe that's you know maybe that's a sign of the you know the fact that they they'd exhausted a lot of it in the in in you know previous years or they they felt like it didn't quite fit the tone of the other of the other shows, or maybe they were just moving moving away a little bit in terms of what they wanted to focus on. But I think it, it, overall, Shakespeare seems to be um, overall a really good fit with Trek, doesn't it? Like like we said earlier, yeah, I think I think it really does sort of it does sort of make a lot of these episodes even more classical and and interesting and you know reflective definitely definitely i mean i wonder whether with with voyager and enterprise to an extent there's a kind of move to make the characters more a bit more relatable i mean if you think of like someone like tom paris he's obsessed with kind of 20th century popular culture and there's a kind you, you know so he's, he's kind of more he's not of our time but there, there's more of a kind of link to our own time and there, there may be more relatable characters with enterprise even more so you know they swear a bit and they kind of you, you know there's all these kind of gestures to sort of say well these these people are not that different from us they're they're certainly not the evolved humans of the future you know um and maybe that that comes across that that shakespeare sort of you know slightly um falls a little bit by the wayside in those series in favor of other kind of cultural touchstones you know in voyager it's the kind of schlock 
uh, sci-fi stuff. Again, you, you, I mean, like Captain Proton and so on. Again, in Enterprise, there's, you, you know, the movie night is all these kind of uh, old black and white kind of pulpy B-movies, basically. That seems to be the kind of human culture that people are interested in and that, that they relate to, rather than kind of what we would think of as, as sort of lofty classic literature in a sense. Mm, yeah, I think there could be something to that, definitely. And a changing sort of example of how people are engaging with Star Trek and they want things a little bit more relatable to, you know, the modern day. Who knows? It's, it, it is interesting, potentially, yeah, how that, that is a signifier of how Star Trek's changing as well. And it's possibly, I mean, it'd be interesting to see, you know, moving forward. I mean, you know, obviously we've got Discovery coming up along the line. We know Nick Meyer's been working on that. I mean, we talked a little bit in our episode about the Wrath of Khan, about the influence, what he might bring from a kind of literary, you know, having a passion for literature, what he might bring to that. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what role, if any, uh, Shakespeare plays in that story. But, but I mean, just sort of thinking about broadly this kind of issue of, you know, what is it about Star Trek and Shakespeare that kind of binds them together? I mean, I, I suppose when we when we single out Voyager and Enterprise like that, the other thing we're doing, I mean, we talked in our holodeck episode, uh, I mentioned the person who made the list of uh, all the holodeck episodes um, and, and pointed out there was only one in Deep Space Nine and sort of jokingly said, and that gives you an indication of why Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek series. <laughs> I mean, you know, most people, if they were going to rank their Star Trek series, Voyager and Enterprise are the ones that kind of uh, fall down to the bottom. And it sort of makes me think, is there, you know, what does that tell us? Does that tell us something about, you know, that there's something missing from those series that maybe the kind of the Shakespeare connection taps into? I mean, I suppose one of the things that if you think about why is why is there such a good fit? We, we talked a bit about the kind of heightened reality of Star Trek. We talked about a bit about the sort of heightened language and so on, the, the kind of performance ideas. But I think there's also an idea that Shakespeare has a sort of um, a sensibility that's very well suited to Star Trek. He has a very, you know, uh, an extraordinary creative mind, extraordinary imagination. Uh, you know, like I said before, I think he would be writing Star Trek if he was alive today, if they were producing it. But also a kind of real humanistic uh, approach to, to people. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that makes Shakespeare so interesting is that as much as there are these kind of grand plots and this sort of over the topness to some of it and this kind of richness to the poetry, the language and so on. There's also this great kind of psychological penetration of, you, you know, the way that people behave and the, the relationships between people and the complexities of, of motivation and, you know, all these kind of things. It's one of the reasons that people, you know, love those plays. But there's also a kind of social conscience i think in a lot of his a lot of his dramas um that kind of comes through you know maybe comes through between the cracks and i was thinking there's um I don't know if you've seen it. There's a kind of uh, there's a, a, a on the rounds doing the rounds on the internet. There's Ian McKellen basically for the last few years has been reciting, uh, as far as I can see, any time anyone asked him to come and you know do a speech about something, he recites this speech from Henry VIII, uh, which is the only I think the only piece of manuscript that's known to be written in Shakespeare's handwriting. It was a play that he that was written by various people, but he had a hand in it. And the assumption is that he at least wrote this famous speech because it's 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 in his handwriting. It's the only example of his handwriting, and that speech. It's it's, it's a really wonderful piece of writing and it's basically it's it's about you know the reason that Ian McKellen goes around reciting the whole time is it's about um, immigrants and about refugees and about you know how do you treat these people who have nothing and they come to your that you know they come to your country and they ask for help do you do you throw them out do you treat them with cruelty uh, and you know how would you like to be treated if you were in their situation and it's very much that kind of I don't know just something about watching Ian McKellen who also is this of course great Shakespearean you know famous 
Royal Shakespeare Company actor. Uh, also, you, you know, obviously, as we know, best friends with Patrick Stewart. They're, they're kind of um, they're contemporaries. I mean, you if you watch, I don't know if you've seen those old. Um, videos that they made at the RSC back in the 70s but you, you know fascinating uh, series of videos about playing Shakespeare you can watch them on YouTube um, and you, you know you can see the young Patrick Stewart and the young Ian McKellen in the rehearsal room you, you know uh, doing their speeches and getting their um, you know then getting their sort of feedback from the director and so on so they sort of you know have that that parallel there but I just think when you listen to that speech there's this real sense of it's exactly that kind of social conscience that you get in Star Trek it's exactly that kind of use of allegory to sort of make a point to kind of make the audience um you, you know what Hamlet says that that uh that, that art is a way of holding up a mirror to people and forcing them to to look at themselves and looking at their society and looking at their culture and then you know you know hopefully they see things afresh they see things anew they they kind of learn something um and that's certainly the thing that we get in hamlet you know we we talked a bit previously about the conscience of the king and the way that the play is used uh both in that episode and in and in the play hamlet to kind of illuminate moral failings or whatever but you know absolutely there's this idea that that art is a way of um showing people something true through a fiction and i suppose you know that is absolutely what star trek is doing you know in its use of allegory and its use of i mean that's what our show is about really is about how the real world interacts with the fiction in star trek and and that is that is what star trek does it sort of processes these real things and these influences cultural influences historical influences and so on and it you know uh you know they they go through the through the, the 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 kind of star trek machine and they come out as these kind of interesting entertaining science fiction stories and you can't get more of a cultural touchstone really than shakespeare can you really <laughs> you know absolutely yeah and that, i think that's why it's so pervasive and that's why it works so well in star trek absolutely it's you know it's really the the sort of heart of the same same kind of way of of looking at humanity and, and our place in the world or in the galaxy well, it's been fun treading the boards on the Starship Enterprise, um, <laughs> but uh, Tony and I had better make our exits, stage left. So um, To the ready room. At, yeah, <laughs> off to the ready room. So here's a look at what else has been going on on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, The Orb. After the captain's documentary, I think we all wish that there had been a piano in Cisco's quarters. And at some point in every episode, someone walked in and he was just over in the corner <laughs> rambling away. Warp 5. And there's a wipe from right to left in the screen. And you never see that on Star Trek. It completely pulls me out of the episode every time I see it. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Because I've, I've never, never noticed it. Yeah, I didn't notice it. Ever. Now I'm going to see it. Okay. You just ruined the entire episode for everyone listening. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. The 602 Club. That's a really smart idea uh, because that's also something that, you know, Caesar sees is that we're not that different. The ready room. As with so many places, they CBS and marketing the show and getting it out to as many eyeballs as possible. They're obviously wanting fans and armchair fans and maybe would-be fans, genre fans who might give Star Trek a t But they're still trying to get out to the great unwashed and the mundanes. And, and this is actually stretching the season out beyond 15 actual weeks. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad or Apple TV or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended, all right. Grant them removed. And grant that this your noise hath chid down all the majesty of England. Imagine that you see the wretched strangers, their babies at their backs with their poor luggage plodding to the ports and coasts for transportation, and that you sit as kings in your desires, authority quite silenced by your brawl, and you in rough of your opinions clothed. What had you got? I'll tell you. You had taught how insolence and strong hand should prevail, how order should be quelled. And by this pattern, not one of you should live an aged man, for other ruffians, as their fancies wrought, will self-same hand, self-reason, and self-right, would shark on you, and men like ravenous fishes feed on one another. Oh, desperate as you are, wash your foul minds with tears, and those same hands that you like rebels lift against the peace, lift up for peace." and your unreverent knees make them your feet to kneel to be forgiven. You'll put down strangers, kill them, cut their throats, and lead the majesty of law in lion to slip him like a hound. Say now, the king, as he is clement, if the offender mourn, should so much come too short of your great trespass as but to banish you. Whither would you go? What country, by the nature of your error, should give you harbour? Go you to France, or Flanders, to any German province, Spain, or Portugal, no, anywhere that not adheres to England? Why, 
You must needs be strangers. Would you be pleased to find a nation of such barbarous temper that breaking out in hideous violence would not afford you an abode on earth? Whet their detested knives against your throats. Spurn you like dogs, and like as if that God owned not nor made not you, nor that the elements were not all appropriate to your comfort, but chartered unto them. What would you think to be thus used? This is the strangest case, and this your mountainish inhumanity. <laughs>